Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Before we introduce today's guest, I'd like to introduce Regina Harrison, who is the new president of the African-American Chamber of Commerce in Philadelphia, who will tell us a little bit about the chamber, and then she will introduce Steve, and then I will start asking Steve questions. Regina? Thank you, Mark. Again, my name is Regina A. Harrison, and I am proud to serve as president and CEO of the African-American Chamber of Commerce of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware. We promote the vision, the voice, and the value of Black business ownership in the Delaware Valley, where we serve over 1,500 members committed to supporting the economic empowerment and growth of Black-owned businesses in the region. We do this through advocacy and programming, such as our signature Coaching the Capital and Corporate Peership programs. I am pleased to be with you all today to introduce an esteemed business leader in our community, Steve White, who has dedicated his life to promoting leadership and advancing the accessibility of the digital space for decades. Currently serving in his new post as president and special counsel to the CEO of Comcast Cable, Steve has committed to diversity and inclusion and the advancement of digital equity. Mr. White has over 30 years of experience in sales, marketing, operations, and general management. As president of Comcast West Division, Steve created a culture of working together to win together and led the division to becoming a pace setter in the industry. In addition to his career at Comcast, he is a philanthropist and believes in supporting communities in Denver, where he currently resides and beyond. Steve champions causes related to family and education, including the Denver Scholarship Fund, and speaks to various professional groups to help others along their journey to success. This type of revolutionary leadership and commitment to excellence is an example for many of us in our own communities to give back and pay it forward. His new book, Uncompromising, details the path forward for leaving an impactful legacy in the world and living a life of service of others. Here to talk about his new book, I would like to warmly welcome Steve White. Regina, thank you so much for doing that. And Steve, uh, welcome. Um, and it was great to hear uh, your background and certainly great to hear about the African-American Chamber. And I, I was surprised I didn't know you were that large, 1,700 members. That's quite a big uh, flock that you were overseeing. Well, Regina, first of all, thank you for the great introduction. And Mark, so happy to be with you today. Oh, well, it's great to have you. And you have an amazing story. Uh, and I hope everybody reads this book. Uh, because it's a terrific book. So let's talk about why did you write this book and, and why this title? I, it's a very bold title. Well, you know, it's interesting, Mark. Uh, I came across a quote some years ago. It's, it's been attributed to Mark Twain. The two most important days in your life is the day you're born. The second is when you know why. And it came to me mm -hmm. very early on in my life that 
my legacy, my purpose for being on this earth is to create, a, create that table of prosperity for as many people as possible. And throughout my life, Mark, there have been hand ups. I didn't say hand out, hand up, which is where people have given me an opportunity. And what better way to write a love letter to all the men and women that gave me a hand up than to share what I learned from them in this book. And so this book is all about paying it forward, a love letter to all the men and women that gave me a hand up, not a handout, a hand up. And what better way to acknowledge and recognize their impact on me than sharing with everyone else the lessons that I've learned. And so the book Uncompromising, the title originates from that quote. Once you find out, Mark, why you've been placed on this earth, that is what you're ruthless about. That is what you're uncompromising in your pursuit of your purpose and why. We all know life is about compromise, but when it comes to your purpose, the reason that you're on this earth, that is what you should be uncompromising in your pursuit. Well, clearly you've been uncompromising in your pursuit as anybody who reads through this book and sees how you've managed to make an incredible life for somebody who didn't have that modeling uh, when they were young. So let's start off with your mom was a maid at a motel and you and your brothers helped her. What you learn from that experience and what did your mom teach you? Well, it's interesting at 29 years old, this African-American woman who didn't even know how to drive, didn't even have a driver's license, made the difficult decision that her four boys would be better off and another part of the country away from my father. Now you can imagine as a young boy, the oldest of four boys, I did not necessarily agree with that decision. But going out on your own, you do what you have to do. And she was a motel maid and then she graduated to become a high school janitor for 35 years. But sitting there in that room, Mark, cleaning those motel rooms, and this is motel with an M, not an H, hotel. This is no spa, no elevators. This is when you drive your car up and you drive to your door. And what I learned, although her skill set was greater than being a motel maid, I learned hard work. I learned commitment. I learned bringing the right attitude to work, although that's not what her desire was to clean motel rooms. But she brought a very positive attitude and she challenged us by raising expectations for us. Although we were young, I was 11 years old at the time, her expectations of us were still of greatness. So that's what I learned. Hard work, family, commitment and the setting of expectations. Those are things that I've carried through my entire life. Well, I'm sure when you think about your mom uh, every day, especially when you have a bad day, you're thinking, man, how bad could it be compared to what my mom had to do raising four boys by herself and keeping a roof over our heads and so forth? That's what changes your day every day, right? Like if you're having a bad day, you're thinking, Chip, mom went through a lot um, with us to get us to this point. Everything is gravy compared to that. That's right, Mark. She was uncompromising in her pursuit, even making decisions that we didn't necessarily agree with, but she was uncompromising because she quickly realized her purpose in life was to ensure that these four young boys would grow into men and what I like to call taxpayers and make it a contribution to society. You joined your local Baptist church when you were 13. You write that central uh, in your life to this day. What inspired you to go to church? And with the percentage of people going to church shrinking, 
why do you continue to go and, and did it or does it have an impact on how you do business? Absolutely. Certainly at 13, you go because your mother tells you to go, but we started to grow <laughs> to enjoy it because clearly, Mark, uh, when you go from the housing projects of Indianapolis, where I grew up, to now being in the corporate boardroom and working for one of the top 20 companies in America in Comcast, you don't do that by yourself. So there is clearly something, a destiny that's been set forward for me. And then being able to understand that uh, my faith became a very important part of my life. And the world is difficult enough. And to go through and not having some belief in something that's bigger than you, I would find to be very, very difficult. So I go to church to fellowship with other believers, but also to be inspired and also take the opportunity to step back, reflect, and have, show gratitude for how much success uh, I've enjoyed in my life. So, you know, we started off talking about this. Why was your mom's goal just for you to stay alive and just break the cycle of poverty? And how did you motivate? How did that motivate you to become who you are today? Yeah, it's interesting, Mark. We are shaped by our surroundings and growing up very poor. Uh, my mother saw more heartache than any one person should. And I'm sure there are others uh, listening to us who have experienced that. And so her view was if she could just get us out of that situation and allow us to be exposed to what else the world offered, our chances of achieving some level of success would go up. So her mission was very simple. Let's make sure we get a good education. Let me get them in a safe environment. And then once they get exposed to other opportunities where they can start to see that their dreams are not big enough, then the light can come on and then the possibilities become endless. So while her goal was simple, it was very focused, but she knew that once we made it out, we would then be exposed to all the possibilities that this great country offers. Uh, what is the importance of having a good life partner? And how did you balance that with your professional life? Because you talk a lot about that, about your wife and, and what she's meant to your career. Yeah, my wife, Barbita, the two most important women, probably the two most important people in my life, my mother and my wife. Uh, life is hard enough, Mark. And none of us can go through this life alone and having a life partner that you can count on, that you can go to for advice and direction, but also will give you very tough love. In the book on compromising, we talk about these seven pathways to a life of impact um, and legacy. And one of the pathways is creating and developing what I call road dog relationships. Now, Mark, a road dog is someone, uh, let me give you an example. A fight breaks out, a road dog jumps in, they start helping you, and then they ask questions after the fight. A non-road dog asks questions. Now, why are we in this fight? Why is this argument taking place? Why are you getting your head beat in. I'm, I'm, I'm using an analogy. I'm joking. But it's so right. important to have people side by your side who believe in you, who see things in you that you don't even see in yourself. So when you do hit those valleys, because we all do, you will have someone there to lift you up 
not by uh, uh, pitying you, but asking you difficult questions and challenging you to be the best you can be. So whether it's your wife, whether it's your husband, whether it's your best friend, whether it's a parent, whether it's a sibling, all of us need those road dog relationships to help us through the peaks and valleys of life. Did you want to touch on the other ones as well? Yeah. So the pathways that we talk about first, the first pathway is finding your fight. We talked about this quote are the two most important days of your life is finding your fight. And for me, Mark, usually finding your fight comes through some level of adversity. And my fight became very clear to me because I was fired from a very important job in the late 80s. I was the youngest sales manager with a company called American Hospital Supply. I was not caring for my teammates and I got fired. And while it was a difficult lesson, it was a difficult time in my life. What I learned, Steve, your job as a leader is to serve others. There's a title of a book called Leaders Eat Last. You serve your team and they will serve you. Number two is focus on the real prize. Once you identify your fight, that's where you stay focused on the real prize. Don't get sidetracked with these sideshows. Stay focused on the prize. Mark, you would be surprised to know there have only been 12 important decisions in my life. While we make a ton of decisions, and most of those, if we get them wrong, we're okay. But the 12 important decisions for me are the ones that allow me to lead a life of impact um, and legacy. Number three, live life as a learning lab, always learning and growing. I have more mentors than most people can, can imagine. But Mark, most of these mentors don't even know they're mentoring me. But I observe and I watch and I see who's doing it right. I even watch and see who's doing it wrong so I know what not to do. Number four, think and act like a business. We're a business. I'm the chairman and CEO of Steve White Incorporated. Comcast purchases my services, and I'm thankful for that, but they're investing in my company. So the more you can start thinking of yourself as a company and building your company and investing in your company, the more people will be attracted to you. Number five. The only two things I can control is attitude and effort. That's what I teach my nine-year-old son. Nothing else can you truly control. Your approach, attitude, and effort are the two things you can really um, uh, control. And the last one, I'll go quickly, navigate uncertainty. Uh, there's no certain path in life, but your ability to respond to uncertainty in a positive way, like the pandemic, really will dictate how you live your life. And then finally, we talked about a commit to these road dog relationships. So those are the seven pathways that I've adhered to over my lifetime. And they've evolved, of course. But those are the seven pathways that I talk about in my book, Uncompromising, on how I believe if you follow these seven pathways, Mark, you can leave a life of legacy and impact. There's a song. And in the song, it talks about we die twice. You die the first time when they put you in the ground. The second is the last time someone mentions your name. We should all be striving for a life of legacy where long after we're gone, people are still using our name in a very positive way because we made an impact on them. Well, I use the same example with my daughters when I, I saw them when they were young. Each of us is 
Mark Kramer Incorporated, Steve White Incorporated, and it's and we're each selling your product and a service, and somebody gets to buy all or some of our time. So I tell I've been telling them the same thing since they could understand that concept. Um, what is systemic? How do you define systemic racism, and how did it touch you, and how did you get through it, and do you see it shrinking? Um, Clearly, we've made a great deal of progress, and I think it's always important to acknowledge that we've made progress, Mark. But let's be honest, you know, I have been so blessed where I am now one of the highest ranking African-American leaders at one of the top 20 companies in America. But there are too few of us. So when every time I say I'm the first, that means there's been no one before me. And so when I go into a room, whether I'm serving as a board member uh, for a public company or uh, going on a business trip or uh, visiting uh, others, you just don't see enough people of color in positions of authority. So it's hard to, for me to believe, Mark, that I am so special, that I am so different, that I am so smart that I'm the only one that can make it. And I know that's not the case. I know there's a lot of talent there, but if not given the opportunity. So certainly we've made improvement. Certainly there's still opportunity. So I don't know if it's shrinking. I think we've made opportunities, uh, but clearly when you have large groups of people of color that are not realizing the American dream, something is wrong. Because I do believe the American dream is this. I do believe there's an opportunity to succeed and make an impact. However, um, we don't have enough people realizing the American dream. And that tells me that we have a problem and we have an issue. I'll give you an example. The National Association of Realtors recently came out and talked about very openly through the 70s, 80s and 90s that a large part of segregation in our society and homes were a direct result of banks not providing uh, mortgages and realtors moving and directing people of color to certain neighborhoods. So we know it exists, acknowledging it and then finding ways to fix it has to be all of our life's work, not just people of color, but all Americans, if we're gonna truly create a society of, of equality, diversity and inclusion. What's your, what is your process for dealing with adversity and what was the biggest business failure, which you talked about a couple minutes ago about uh, how you failed as a sales manager and what might have, uh, what might have been, um, you know, that almost, you know, in your own mind, you were embarrassed and, and didn't even want to tell anybody that's the case and you're worried that your own career would be over. How did you manage to overcome that? What was your mindset? And, and I know you had help overcoming that as well, as you mentioned in the book. So talk about how you overcame that adversity, what you learned from it, and how did you manage to get some help uh, and change your mental mindset? Well, let's go back to that fateful day in the late 80s when I got fired. You're right, I was embarrassed. I didn't want to tell anyone about it. Uh, but I got a call that day, Mark, from a guy named Darnell Martin. So go back to legacy. Darnell is no longer with us. He's been gone a long time. But here I am some 25 years plus later, still mentioning his name. That's legacy. But Darnell called me 
and said, Steve, I see something in you that others don't. I think there's more in you that given the right opportunity placed in the right situation, I truly believe you can flourish. So if you want to go on this journey with me and Darnell worked for the same company, just another division at the time, I see something in you. And if you want to go through on this journey, jump aboard. And so from that, Mark, I learned that there's good in everyone. So your job as a leader is to see the good, not the bad, not put on rose colored glasses, but how can I enter every relationship looking for the positive, looking for the opportunity to help that person be better. That was a life lesson for me and something that I still carry with me today. Number two, your job is to serve men and women. Every time you focus on serving others, good things will happen to you. So focus on servicing others. And then finally, Mark, even today, when adversity hits me, you know what I start doing? I start counting my blessings. And once I get to blessing number three or number four, I start to realize, you know what? This is not that bad. Colin Powell says the sun will come up tomorrow. And once you start counting your blessings, you start to realize what you're experiencing is really not that big of an issue. It is a setback. And it's an opportunity for you to move forward. Life is about, Mark, how you respond to adversity. And that's why I talk about in one of the pathways, navigating uncertainty. We're all going to be hit with uncertainty. We're all going to be hit with adversity. How we respond will dictate a life of impact and legacy. How did your father's lack of emotional and physical connection that you write about in the book affect the professional and family man you became? Well, it taught me, you know, uh, most people believe mentors should only be uh, people that do everything right. And certainly my father made some mistakes. I love my father. He's been gone a long time. But also through that process, Mark, I learned what kind of dad I wanted to be. I wanted to be an engaged dad. I wanted to be an involved dad. I wanted to be a dad that my son could always come to and chat and talk. So learning from that relationship gave me some insight of what I didn't want and also gave me an idea of what I did want. And I also learned that to do that, you need a two-parent household. And this is not knocking single parents because sometimes that's, but I know how important it is to have two parents in the household. And my wife and I, Barbita and I both made a commitment that we were going to be together to ensure that we raise this child the right way. Did you did your life experiences making you more or less empathetic with employees? Some people can become unreasonably demanding from an experience like yours, knowing how difficult life and achievement can be. Yeah, what a great question, Mark, and certainly more empathy. Um, you know, my mom was a frontline employee, so I saw what would happen. So, Mark, some nights she would come home, being the oldest of four boys, it was part of my responsibility to help my little brothers get ready for bed and fed and all of this because she worked two jobs. And when she opened that door, Mark, I could tell immediately if it was a good day or a bad day. And the majority of the bad days were dictated by a supervisor or a manager 
who had treated her uh, wrong. Let me give you an example. One of my big jobs, I was working for a company called TCI Telecommunications. At the time, they were the largest cable operator in America. And we were going through difficult times. And I made a decision uh, at the request of our company to save money. Our most experienced employees that had tapped out on the salary range, we would not give them a raise but we would give everyone else a raise. And I remember one of my employees coming to me and said, look, Steve, you have two responsibilities as a leader. This is a frontline technician who I'm still good friends with today. He said, you have two responsibilities, young man. Number one is you always respect your employees. And number two, you ensure my W-2 grows every year. That is your <laughs> to create an environment where your teammates can prosper and grow. And your ability from a leadership standpoint has a direct impact on my ability to care for my family, to send my kids to college, to care for uh, my, my mother or my dad or whatever. And so I never lost that. My responsibility is to respect my employees and number two, to ensure their W-2 grows. And that's a very measurable fact. And I've never lost sight of that. So that those experiences help shape my focus on ensuring that my frontline employees, um, you know, had what they needed to go be successful. You mentioned how a white teacher, Miss uh, Goodrum, and a white basketball coach, Ernie Klein, who had like an amazing record as a coach, yes. impacted your life in many ways. How did someone, uh, how did someone, a white person, believing in you, change your view of race? And your interaction with whites as an adult? Yeah, it's a good question. It, and it shows you that we're, uh, we're all the same. One, we need approval. We want people to recognize our contributions. We want people to see the good in us. And Alice Goodrum, who was my speech teacher, who's no longer with us, and Coach Ernie Hudson, who was the basketball coach. And I was not good enough to play on the basketball team, so I was the manager for the basketball team for three years and supported him. And I just learned humanity, that no matter what your color is, uh, you invest in people, whether they're black, white, yellow, green, it doesn't matter. You invest in people. And so now to be able to be with people beyond what I saw on TV, beyond what I read about, beyond what others had said, I had my own experience with people that loved me for me and saw things in me that I didn't see in myself. And it was a important learning experience, Mark. Never judge a book by the cover. Never come in with a preconceived notion of who you're sitting with. Get to know that person. Spend a minute with them and start to see them for who they really are. That was a very valuable le lesson for me that I've carried through my, my entire career. Uh, a very smart, accomplished friend of mine said to me the other day that he hopes he doesn't do something stupid that will blow up an amazing relationship with his current girlfriend. And he's a real good guy, but he worries about this. You write about avoiding setting negative expectations, which often turn into reality. How do you avoid that from happening? Yeah, there's a quote by Shakespeare, and I have it uh, you know, highlighted in my closet so I can see it every day. Mark, nothing is good. Nothing is bad. Thinking makes it so. So your mindset 
really sets for you the kind of relationships you're going to have. If I go into relationships, I realize that I'm going to see the absolute best in someone that will give them the benefit of the doubt until they prove you wrong, of course. But what I find most times people rise to the expectations that you've set for them. If you respect them at an incredible level, they will rise to that. They will respect you at the same level, but it all starts with mindset. I had a friend who graduated from Bassler and Penn who burned out at 25 due to incredibly high expectations by her mother who would threaten to throw her out <laughs> of the house if she came home with anything less than an egg. Uh, my parents were just hoping I came home with something. <laughs> Uh, let alone then, hey, uh, you write and mention about setting unrealistic expectations and the negative impact they can have. How do you handle that for the people that work for you and for your own son? Well, you, you start treating everybody as individuals. I think when we get into trouble, Mark, as a leader, as a parent, is when we start to look at people as one group. And now we have one set of expectations. But we are all different. And so the expectations that you set, um, you know, are very important that you do it as an individual. Let me give you an example. I was at Harvard Business School for some executive education. I don't know, maybe four or five years ago. And at that time, my son was four or five years old. I bought different T-shirts of different sizes, all with Harvard Business School you know, on the on the T-shirt. So as my son goes through his young days he will always have Harvard Business School sweatshirts and golf shirts and all of that kind of stuff. And the point here, Mark, is not that he goes to Harvard, although that would be great, not to go to, it's not about going to Harvard, but we're setting an expectation that you are a smart young man, you bring unique skills to the table, and higher education is the path to success. So while we're setting expectation that university and higher education is there and it's available and mom and dad are going to make sure that we have money set aside for you. That's the expectation we're setting. It's not so focused on Harvard. So it's all about setting expectation, but keeping it in perspective. I need you to do your absolute best today. Only you know if you've given your best. And setting those expectations with perspective, Mark, is what inspires people. Um, and then the trick here now, not trick, but what's critical, it starts to become their expectation. So now my son says, dad, when I go to Harvard, hear that Mark, when I go to Harvard, do I have to root for the Boston Red Sox and the New England Patriots? <laughs> I said, absolutely not. We don't like them. No, I'm kidding. We, but, you know, yeah. they win all the time. So that's why we don't like yeah. it. But now, yeah. but now, Mark, listen, it's now become his expectation, not mine. He's now talking at nine years old. When I go to Boston, do I have to be fans of the Boston Celtics and leave my Denver Broncos and my Denver Nuggets? And we're no, Absolutely not. You don't have to be. You can stay loyal to Denver. But now, Mark, it's become his expectations. And that's what we have to do as leaders and parents is plant the seed, encourage and then allow for them to for it become their expectations. Now it's freedom versus uh, chains. 
No, you're right. I mean, I'm Jewish and, and you're born knowing you're going to college. Like, it's not like a choice. Like you don't get to say, I might do something else. <laughs> this is what you do. You get to choose if you're going for graduate school, that's the only choice you have. And that's the way it is. And once that's kind of set, uh, now I think the stat is 95% of uh, Jewish adults have uh, college degrees because, because that's just. But, but Mark, nobody says you got to go to this school. You got to go to this school. They're just that yeah. expectation. And now you get to own that by picking. Right. School. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And my, I feel my biggest achievement was uh, getting both of my daughters through school and paying hundred percent of it and they have no debt. So to me, that's my greatest accomplishment. That's incredible, Mark. And, you know, I just, I don't want to lose the point you just made. You said 95% of Jewish uh, members of our adults are going to college. Think about that expectation. That is the power of setting the right expectations. Um, and, And I think we can all learn from that. On the reverse side, how do you make sure that people don't have, uh, that don't have positive role models or come from impoverished backgrounds still strive to maximize their potential. Because I think we see a lot in Philly that there are kids with enormous potential, but not only do they not see role models, but in some cases they're discouraged by being telling them you're stupid or you know, you don't have any chance the whole world stacked against you. So forget it. You know, you're not going to make it. So how do you turn that kind of thinking around. Well, it's a unique role, Mark. And one of the reasons I wrote the book is we have to continue to provide role models and exposure to young people that what's in front of them is not always the limit of their their potential. So the more we can expose them, the more we can spend time uh, doing that. So, for instance, as I promote the book, I will be at several HBCUs, historically black uh, colleges and universities, yeah. talking about the book, talking about the American dream. This is not about a money thing. This is about sharing the American dream that it is possible. And here's some approaches that might work. So, the more we can do that, speaking at my church, uh, taking those opportunities to do that. I've created a fairly, uh, you know, robust social media platform to really talk about this because, Mark, one of the things we do not teach in school anymore, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, our teachers taught us about the American dream. They talked to us about the possibilities. They talked about potential and what you could turn that into. And unfortunately, I don't believe we teach that enough in school. And so now it requires people like you and me and others that are listening to us today, even if it's just identifying one person, one young person and pour into them, if we all do that, if we just adopt one person that we're going to pour into, that's how we start to make the difference. And then here's what happens, Mark. Once that light gets, see, all of us come with the light and over time that light gets turned up or it gets turned down. We all have the ability to make that light brighter for people. And now the more we can share, uh, that's how we do it. And writing books and things like that are going to help make a difference. Uh, What have you learned about how to succeed in corporate America, especially as a minority? Number one is be you. When I first got into corporate America, it was all about assimilation. Uh, It was about dress this way, 
act this way, say it this way, hang out with this group of people. And I realized it was exhausting, Mark. It's hard enough just being one person. Then trying to be multiple people is exhausting. And I talk a lot, a little bit about this and what I call my black exhaustion that I'm sure we'll talk about uh, a little bit later. Uh, but this notion of be you, be authentic. And if you're with the right company, you're working with the right people, they're going to appreciate it. And if you're not with the right company, it's better to find that out as soon as possible so you can get out of there quickly and not waste your talents there. So number one is, is be you. Number two, results matter. Yes, are there companies that don't always recognize merit? Absolutely. But the majority of companies that I've interacted with are all about trying to generate a profit for their shareholders and ensure their company is relevant 50 years from now. So put points on the board is very, 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 very important. Number three, don't look at setbacks as a setback. Look at it as an opportunity to step back and improve. Own that radical responsibility along with some other things. But those are the three most important things. Be you. Number two, you got to put points on the board and try to gravitate to jobs where the measurement is very clear. One of the decisions, Mark, that I made early on in my career, and this has not, I'm not saying anything about all the other different jobs in corporate America because they're all important, but I focus my time on making sure that my jobs, I stay close to the profit and loss statement. And the reason that was so important, Mark, was results are measurable. I was either making money for the company, bringing on more customers, providing a great customer experience, my contributions and my team's contributions were easy to measure. And when you can get in a situation like that, where you now have being you put results on the table, and then I outworked everyone else. Um, that was just me. And I brought the right attitude. Those are the three or four things that have helped me navigate. And then Mark, we're all presented with opportunities. Sometimes we don't realize an opportunity is being presented to us. But if we stay, there's a phrase, say, stay woke, stay woke, yeah. stay aware of opportunities as they come your way and grab onto those because they're all presented to us. Some of us see them sooner or earlier than others. Uh, and I have a question from the audience, but before I um, put that question out there, you mentioned black exhaustion. What is that? Well, black exhaustion for me came from 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 two, two perspectives. And one, you have to embrace it. Number one, if you're an African-American, and maybe this is the same way in the Jewish community, maybe it's the same in the Hispanic community, is if you achieve a level of success, you recognize that there were others that came before you that paved the way, Mark, for you to have that opportunity. You didn't get there by yourself. And they're not all famous people like Martin Luther King Jr. or John F. Kennedy. There were a lot of people who walked this path before you. So your responsibility is to ensure that you bring others along. And I'm sure there's some African-Americans listening today probably could attest to that. There's an exhaustion tied to that. There's an expectation that you need to bring others along if you, uh, if you achieve a level of success. And the best way is to embrace that, to understand that, to appreciate that and find ways to bring others along. Then on the flip side, 
being the first and sometimes only African-American in a situation in corporate America, that's exhausting because you feel that the, the bar is higher. You feel that you've uh, got to do more since you're, you're the only one. And if you don't make it happen, the next group won't be able to make it because they'll say, see, we gave them an opportunity or gave him an opportunity. He didn't take advantage of it. That is exhausting in the way I've tried to deal with it. I've embraced it to say, you know what? It is my responsibility to create a path of opportunity for other people of color. Okay, I understand that I'm the first here. I'm the first president at Comcast. I'm going to embrace that. I'm going to find ways to ensure that I'm not the only one. And so I was very proud of the fact that my replacement uh, before I went into this new job as president of Comcast West was another African-American leader. Not that that was the uh, key criteria to, to succeed me. But the fact is that I had helped the company develop several successor options uh, of people of color, and one of those was able to replace. So that's what I mean by the exhaustion, and then you've got to embrace it. And I'm sure there are others uh, listening today understand that and probably can, can share in that. So the question from the audience is, uh, can you tell us about a time when someone on your team didn't meet your expectations, and how did you handle it? Well, you know, one of the things that I do, Mark, is I set a strategy that at the end of the year, everyone should be able to write their own performance review. And here's what I mean by this. If you work for me or in my on my team or within our extended circle, every month we would sit down together and review your performance. We would talk about the subjective and the objective. And then after that meeting, I will recap that in writing and send it to you. And so by the end of the year, Mark, can you imagine we've got 12 pieces of document in your file that says, man, you're doing a great job or you're doing an okay job or you're not meeting the expectations. And so now the decision becomes easy if you're not meeting the expectation because you've essentially fired yourself. We've talked about it, we've documented it, you've made some commitments. And based on that, you did not do it. So therefore, I've never fired anyone. They fired themselves. And so to the listener, that's how I try to do it is through management by objectives, constant communication, and then there are no surprises. And that is a very pragmatic approach that I would encourage everyone listening today, that if you're leading men and women, you adopt that and you will find that the level of performance will go up. And then the folks that are not meeting it, they will be exposed for everyone to see. And therefore, the decision becomes very, very easy. Um, just curious, what does your average day look like from the time you wake up until you call it a day? And has the structure evolved over time? Yeah, it certainly has evolved, Mark, uh, because obviously now in my new job, it's not as demanding as my last job. For 11 years, I was president of Comcast West. I led 30,000 employees, almost $18 billion in revenue. So you can imagine what my day was like. It's a little different now uh, because I have other interests like writing the book, speaking and talking to folks. But I'm still an early riser. Um, I, I believe being fit is important. So I get up early every morning around 4, 4.15. <clears throat> I have a personal trainer. I'm blessed enough where I can uh, afford a personal trainer. So we work out for 45 minutes. 
And I'm the morning shift. My wife is the night shift because of COVID. We're all at home. So my wife does all the homework in the evening, make sure my son gets fed. I'm the morning shift. I get him up in the morning. We have a, a math tutor that comes over. I help him get ready. I get him off to school. Uh, so that's how my day starts. And then I get back to home. And around 830, I start my meetings throughout the day. Um, and I usually go to around 6, 630 uh, at night every day. But I try to build in moments throughout the day, Mark, where I can step back, reflect, think, recharge. Um, and that's what allows uh, me to get through the day. And then usually on the weekends, usually around Friday at noon, Friday at two o'clock, something like that. Through Sunday night, I try to focus on my family. I try not to do any work because I want to spend time with my family. And Mark, I'm sure you know this. It's not about quantity. It's about quality. Uh, yeah, so, for, sure. for instance, now on Saturdays, I get up early in the morning. My son's learning to ski. I drive an hour and a half every every Saturday morning up to Winter Park. He takes ski lessons and we, we come back. And so that's how my life is feel. I try to live my life now by three key pillars, Mark. One is business, staying intellectually stimulated, staying involved in the game. The second is finding a way to give back. And I do a lot of uh, work in trying to give others a hand up. And then the third big pillar is family. So I try to find a balance between those three pillars. I wish I would have learned that earlier in my career is to have a better balance between those three things. Uh, but unfortunately, sometimes things only come to us with age. Yeah, well, it's very hard to have balance when you're trying when you're aspiring to move up the ladder and you know what it takes, and it's not a 40-hour week. Exactly it's an impossible right. uh, to do it. I like the guy you remember the book when we were younger, the five-hour work week. The only one who worked only five hours was the guy who wrote that book. He made a fortune telling all of us that hey, you don't you don't need to work five more than five hours yeah. in a week. And Mark, that's such a good point because I often get asked, hey Steve, tell me about work-life balance. I say, I don't know what it is. I call it a work uh, life integration. So for instance, if I'm on a Saturday last year when I was still in my old job, I was taking my son to soccer, but we might stop at an Xfinity Comcast retail store, say hello to the employees. My son knew the employees. He knew the business we were in. While I was still taking him to soccer, that's what I call work-life integration. And then we talk about what he just uh, spent time with employees and how did that go and all of that. So I don't know about work-life balance. I certainly know about work-life integration. And the more I can integrate my family into what we're doing, the more it becomes kind of a team sport. I think that's like an important thing that you should write a story about work-life integration, integration. Um, balance because the whole generation, uh, my daughter has a global marketing practice and she does exceedingly well, but she's always saying, you know, and I don't want to work like you six days a week. I need more work-life balance. And that's uh, a mantra from her generation that watched our generation uh, work a gazillion hours to try to ascend up the ladder. So they're, they're trying to do it, but I like the idea of the integration part for sure. Hey Mark, let me tell you why, uh, why yeah. it's so key, if you don't mind, is... Yeah, of course. Go back Please. Quote, the two most important days of your life, the day you're born, and the second is when you know why. Uh, yeah. Once I find my purpose, it should not be separate from work, right? It should not be separate from family. If I am living my why, if I'm living my purpose... Why would I carve that out for my family? Why would it be over here on the shelf 
Why wouldn't it be integrated? Let me give you an example. I serve on three uh, uh, public company boards, Hormel Foods, Shaw Communications, and W.W. Granger. The common theme, Mark, about all three of those companies for me, 80% of their employees are frontline. So it allows me to serve my purpose by making a difference in the lives of many based on the decisions we make there in the boardroom. So I'm living my purpose. I'm integrating it with what I'm doing, but I'm still out there, uh, you know, working hard and building my company up. So that's why the integration piece should not be separate, because if you're not living your why, why would you want to go put it on the shelf and keep it away from your family? You would want to expose to them that um, and therefore it becomes a family thing and not just a dad thing or a mom thing. Uh, how does one become more self-aware and objectively look at themselves in order to improve? I mean, that's a really hard thing to do. Yeah, that's where those road dogs come in, Mark. I'm sure I want you to visualize that. I want everybody listening to us, visualize someone in your life that shoots you straight. They tell you the truth, even when it hurts. My hope is everyone here has someone they can point to that will give them that tough love, shoot them straight. And so surrounding yourself with as many people as possible that will give it to you straight. Think about how many people go through life, particularly, Mark, when you achieve some level of success, the number of people around you telling you how great you are, how smart you are, you can't do any wrong. That's not the kind of people you want. You want people around you that will praise you when necessary, but will also give you the tough love when needed. And so I would ask everyone listening to us today, if you can't count three or four people in your life that you can count on to give you straight and honest feedback, then you need to go find another set of friends. And Mark, uh, can you think about somebody in your life? Can you think about two or three people um, that give it to you? I all my friends are super direct and I get rid of the ones that don't. I had a friend, you know, who would just tell you what you wanted to right. hear. And that was costing me. So you want to hear hear that. And of course, if you have a Jewish mother, she's definitely <laughs> going to give you that direct. Well, trust me, Mark, if yeah. you have an African-American mother, you're going to get the same thing. So we're we're two brothers just from another mother, right? hundred uh, percent. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you write about finding your real fight. You've been talking about that throughout this uh, interview. What do you mean by that? And how do you find it? Is that like different than finding your passion? It's all the same. Finding your purpose, finding your fight. Uh, why were you placed on this earth? And people say, well, Steve, how do you know that you found it? And Mark, here's what I say. What are you good at that you would do for free if you had to? That's the best. I'm doing it now. Yeah. I, for me, you know, <laughs> as you know, in the book publishing business, we're not John yeah. Grisham here. None of us are getting richer yeah. writing books. This yeah. Is a love yeah. affair. This is a passion that we want to make a difference and we're essentially doing it for free. And so find something that you're good at because you'll get paid for it. You're good at, but you would do it for free. And if you would do something that you're good at and for free, I think you're getting close to your passion. And so now remember, I say you're good at it, right? I mean, I would love to be a professional golfer. I would love to be a professional singer. I'm just not very good at it. But what are right. you good at? 
And then what uh, would you do for free? And there are a number of books out there. Strength Finders, I found, helped me really cultivate my purpose and why. So there are a number of tools out there that will help you. But I believe if you just step back and reflect, over time, it will become very clear to you. I think you're more attractive to everybody uh, by the fact that you're passionate about what you do. And you're positive. I mean, it doesn't, it, it's not a question of money. It's a question of how excited you are about what you do. And everybody feels that energy, teacher, trash collector, whatever that may be, right? That's exactly what Martin Luther King said, you know, whether you're a treasurer, be the best at it that you can be. But, you know, Mark, I, I know you're a sports fan. A lot of athletes yeah. don't get enough credit for how much time they put into their craft when they were not being paid. You go back and look at a Michael Jordan or whatever, the number of hours they put into something or Bill Gates, the amount of time that he put into his early days, playing around with computers, tinkering, trying to figure it out. He was making zero, but it was he was so passionate about it that he actually turned it into a great business. Michael Jordan came became one of the greatest basketball players. And I can go on and on and on. Um, but that look for something that you're good at and that you would do for free. Uh, and I promise you, if you're good at it and you're passionate, somebody will find a way to pay you for it. Yeah, that's my dad used to say. There's always room for one more good one. There all, <laughs> there's, there's all that. I love that, Mark, because people think that there are only so many seats around the table. That's not the case. There are a ton of seats around the table. All you have to do is pull up a chair. Yeah, yeah. And we see it with authors and singers and ball players and, and every, uh, every walk of life. How could you, could you please talk about suspension of disbelief related to possibilities in achieving your dreams? Yeah. Uh, often, Mark, and I'm sure you've run into this, when you look right in front of you, you're saying, there's no way I can accomplish that goal because it seems so far away. But you have to almost suspend what you're seeing. You have to suspend that to believe what can happen. Let me share a very personal story with you. My wife, Barbita, and I, for a number of years, we struggled to have children. And uh, even doctors were saying, hey, we are not sure this is going to happen. And we tried in vitro. We tried a number of things. But, you know, Mark, we, my wife and I moved 11 times in our my corporate career. And every time we would move into a new home, she would find a door. Maybe it was a closet. Maybe it was an extra bedroom, whatever. She would put a blue and pink ribbon on the door handle because she kept visualizing that this eventually will be the nursery for our children. And so time and time, it never happened. But she never lost faith. She didn't allow me to lose faith. And then what you could you imagine, Mark, then we got pregnant without any assistance. We got pregnant on our own and we have this wonderful little boy that we named Stephen Andrew White II. But Mark, here's the punchline. We share the same birthday. We share oh, the okay. same birthday. Doesn't your younger brother also share your and birthday? And my youngest brother also shares my birthday. So this, wow. is, this is where... You let's not be naive now, but you have to, you can't allow what's in front of you 
to block your vision. So this is where you have to suspend your disbelief. This is all the stuff that's in front of you and start to think about the possibilities. It might not happen in your time frame, but if you believe and you put yourself in a position for it to happen, it can happen. Now we put a lot of time and effort into it. We tried to stay healthy. We read a lot. Uh, so we put ourselves in a position to have a child, uh, but we never lost sight of that. And I thought sharing that personal story with our audience here uh, would give them some indication uh, that it's real. It can happen. And that's my story. And uh, hopefully it inspires someone listening to us today. Uh, well, it inspired me to have you come on this show for sure. Here's the last question for you. How do you invest in yourself and what are your recommendations for others? Um, this is where have, I want to go back to those road dog relationships, Mark. I want to go back to those truth tellers, the men and women or your Jewish mother, or my African-American mother. People will give us really good insight into what's working and what's not working, where we have talents, where we don't have talents. And then that's when you seek out mentors. Remember how I mentioned, Mark, I have more mentors than most people know. And most of those mentors have no idea that they're even mentoring me. And so uh, let me give you one small example. Let's say you're focused on this part of your deal, leading men and women through adversity. Let's just say that's one of your developmental opportunities as a leader or maintaining patience through crisis, whatever it is. Try this. I want you to go Google research and find 12 books on that particular subject and commit to yourself. You'll read one book a month. And by the end of the year, you'll read 12 books on that area of opportunity for you. And I promise you, Mark, if you're not better after a year spend reading 12 books, they could be short books, they could be big books you pick. I guarantee you that that weakness that you've identified, that investment in your company will no longer be a weakness. I'm not saying it's going to be your greatest strength, but it won't be a weakness any longer if you commit yourself. So that is just one very pragmatic, practical example of a tool that I've utilized to help me be better and to be the best I can be. Steve, you were awesome. Uh, I loved your book and uh, kudos to your mom, which did a great job because your brothers are all very successful as well. Uh, That's true. I thank everybody for coming on and listening to you today. My hundredth show is actually this Friday uh, when I have um, Deborah Westfall, the author of Convergence. She's a futurist coming on, which is ideal to have as your 100th show. So uh, Steve, when you write another book, I hope we're going to have you back again. And I'm going to be in contact with you some, for some other ideas that I have, and I have questions for you on. Everyone have a wonderful, safe day. And again, Steve, thank you so much. And best of luck with this book. Great. Thank you, Mark and Regina. Thank you for the wonderful introduction. Yeah, thank you, Regina, for joining us and doing that introduction. Great meeting. Thank you for having me. This was a wonderful conversation. Bye, everybody. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.